Welcome to Zen Mind, a podcast featuring talks from Zanki Dillo Roshi, the guiding teacher at the Boulder Zen Center in Boulder, Colorado. We are excited to announce our upcoming weekend seminar titled An Appropriate Response, The Essence of the Buddhist Path. This seminar will explore the challenge of manifesting an appropriate response moment by moment in the midst of ever-changing circumstances, in our meditation practice, and in our everyday lives. If you're interested in learning more about the seminar, I've put a link in the show notes for you. Today's talk was recorded as a public Dharma talk given on Saturday, February 18th. You are always welcome to join us live for our public Dharma talks, either in person or online. You can find the Dharma Talk schedule as well as the Zoom link on our website, and you can find that link in the show notes as well. Now here's Zanki Roshi. There are some fruits of Zazen practice. And um, let's call them there may be there maybe there are a thousand maybe there are there's one I don't know let's just I'll just point out two let's call them clarity and stability clarity would be something like um, you're not drawn into and identified with your discursive thought. Your, disturf- your discursive thought, thinking, subsides. It doesn't maybe go, you know, it doesn't go away completely. It goes away for periods of times for some of us. Longer periods of times, shorter periods of times. But the main point is, it's if you're not identified with this discursive thinking, it feels like there's a... There is a um, field of mind showing itself behind your thought activity that feels like that feels clear. You know, this is this famous uh, example or metaphor, simile of the sky and the clouds. You can start to sense the sky behind the clouds. The clouds being your discursive thought and the sky being that mind of clarity. Uh, Another fruit is that if you have a taste of this clear mind, you can start to give yourself permission, let's put it that way, give yourself permission to rest in it. Like, why not just rest in that field? It can feel like the, f- the field that begins to show itself behind the discur- activity of discursive thinking is more what I am than the contents that are floating around. All right. 
Now, if you don't have a clear taste of this, then you may be tempted to hear my words and say like, oh, I gotta get there. It's like, this is um, how we, we, you know, you haven't just heard this from me, you've read stuff, you know, everybody's talking about it in their own way. But um, if you instrumentalize your practice to get there, then you create a, an additional activity like, you know, I want to get there. It's going to make it hard for you to experience it. This is a difficulty in practice. So instead, you can uh, pick your practice and stick to it. And by picking your practice and sticking to it, you are inviting this experience to mature in you and to become more um, noticeable over time. So you don't force it or um, try to speed up the process. Of course you will try to get there and speed up the process, but then you can remind yourself of this difficulty and then you return to the method. Meaning, if it is for you, um, if it is breath attention, then uh, you return without discussion to breathing. You see what happens there, it's very important. It's like you just interrupt and go somewhere else. There's, there's a principle here that we should really appreciate, and it's difficult to, to recognize, to fully realize this outside of a monastic context, and it's hard in a monastic context too, but in Zen, you don't work on the mind with the mind. You work on the mind with the body. Now, this is a distinction that is maybe ultimately not right. You work on the mind with the body-mind. You work on the body-mind with the body-mind, but you emphasize the body because the mind just gets you into trouble. If you observe your mind and you say like, oh, you know, I have this problem, and then you think about it, there's no shift, really. Not There's not, not a fundamental shift. There's just more thought about thought. Anyway, you get the point. So how do you make the shift? How do you use the body to shift into clarity and stability? Our friend David gave me a Muse headband. I don't know, some of you may have heard of it. It was completely new to me. Never crossed my mind to use such a thing. It's, uh, it's, it's this um, device that measures your um, brain waves and gives you biofeedback about what's going on in terms of your brain waves. Right? <clears throat> There's all kinds of modes on it. It's like I'm, I don't know why they make everything complicated. You know, it's like I guess we just need tons of choices so we feel empowered. I don't know. It's like. You know, am I going to 
do this much. Like, you can choose mind, heart, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's already overwhelming to me. It's like, I have to choose between the mind and the heart. Okay, forget it. But anyway, I chose the mind. And um, then in the mind, I have 10 options, you know. Anyway, to make a to make it simple, it's like if the the device distinguishes between and we'll see where we get with this. I'm not recommending using the device, by the way. It's just like I just want to illustrate a point. <laughs> but if you want to use it, fine. I don't know. I just I I've just been experimenting with it because David told me so. <laughs> Last time he was here, he said, have you used it? Can I have it back? <laughs> I said, not much. Maybe I'll use it a little more before you can have it back. So I've been, I've been using it a little more. Okay. Um, so what's my point? Anyway, the device distinguishes between active, neutral, and calm. So it measures something. I don't know what, but it measures, and then it... It shows you in a graph after you've meditated for 10 or 20 minutes or however long. Um, shows you, you know, how you, how you've done calm, neutral, active. Um, when you're in the calm zone, there are computer generated birds that sing as a reward. I, I really like those birds. It's, they're quite nice. They're really good. I mean, they're computer generated, not real birds, but yeah, it's like you feel like you're in some, I don't know, strange rainforest with uh, bird sounds. Otherwise, it's very still, very empty space, and then the birds sing. Okay, so I guess the goal of the whole thing is you got to get the birds as a sign that your mind is calm. So I'm not. So I don't know. It's not so hard for me to get the birds. I I can do it. I have I've practiced meditation for a long time. So the thing that what that was interesting to me is like how do I get the birds? How quickly do I get them? And if I lose them, how do I get back? They call that um, also something. Recovery, I think. So now, I suppose this would be different for different practitioners. Um, but I'll just tell you how it is for me, okay? And it, it shows me something about how I generate the shift that I'm talking about. <clears throat> I go to, um, I shift to a body awareness and I do it with something I call the six point practice. And the six point practice is feeling your feet, feeling your hands, feeling your pelvic floor and your, the top of your head. Or you've, well, that's kind of the same actually. The face, but also the top of the head. So maybe it's seven points. Um, uh, 
And I just go there. Now, you can build this practice by going one foot, the other foot, one hand, the other hand, pelvic floor, head. But I've done it so much, I can just go to all six points at the same time. Which means I allow attention to spread out throughout my whole body. And I'm using the endpoints to get it all, so to speak, you know, together the whole sphere of, um, of the felt body. And one thing I can observe is what happens is, right, this all sounds so woo sometimes, but it's like energy kind of sinks in the body, sinks into the body and spreads spatially within the body. It's like, if there's any way that you got kind of like caught up in your head thinking, you just let that drain. <clears throat> now, if you do breath, breath practice, in my view, breath practice is basically doing the same thing. You bring energy down into the sensations of your breathing. But what I've just described is when you let the breath penetrate the whole body. So, I, I just, I guess what I'm doing now is I'm sort of skipping this intentional breath practice and just going to breath attention, penetrating the whole body. And the birds come. I mean, I just do that, and the birds are there. So, whatever that means, you know, I don't know. It changes something in the brain waves. Clearly, it's what that device is saying to me. <clears throat> so this is my this was my go-to method, you know. It's like, and I recognize that's what I do when I go on a walk. or when I go running, or when I go grocery shopping. Now, if I'm in a busy place, it's like, uh, like that. Oh. I want some way to feel stable in the midst of this busyness or this stability. So I, I just do that and I make that kind of shift. I'll talk about that a little bit more later. Maybe. So what I'm saying right now is if if you're interested in a kind of mm, what you what should we call this? It's a it's a kind of next step practice, right? It's like you have your practice on your cushion, but then you also want to bring that clarity and stability into your daily life, right? We, we talk about that. It's like this is this is important. Otherwise, your practice is compartmentalized into like practice on your cushion or practice and no practice uh, when you just live your life. And so it feels practice doesn't penetrate. Doesn't really, it's not really transformative. 
So you may feel better on the cushion, but it doesn't really transform your daily activity. So important question is, how do you let that practice um, penetrate into your daily activity, like the grocery store? If you've practiced for a while, like I have, what has happened, I think, for me? I'm just analyzing this to make it, to explain it. But, you know, for a long time I didn't analyze it, so it wasn't clear to me what, I don't know, it wasn't conceptually clear what's going on, and I'm still just, I don't know, trying to make sense of it. I guess what's happened is that through returning attention to breathing, returning attention to breathing, letting that breath attention penetrate the whole body and letting that breath attention that can be mm, located in the whole body maybe um, activated by this six or seven point practice to let that also penetrate into the whole of space. This, which I... I call the field of mind. We'll get to that again uh, later too. I guess what has happened is that these mm, layers of experience of clarity and stability, again, let's call it that, um, they have what word to use? Mm, consolidated into certain bodily feelings that, you know, maybe we could call them bodily markers that I know. They're like an inner, they're kind of like an inner landscape. I can just, you know, identify those markers and sort of generate them. Does that make sense? It's, it's, you know, what this Muse device is telling me is like by giving me the birds is, and I can, I can make that correlation. When that bodily marker is there, the birds sing. So if I want to generate a shift, I need to uh, remember that bodily marker and find a way to generate it. This is kind of instant. This isn't like, oh, it's going to take 30 minutes to get to a calm state of mind. <clears throat> if that connection isn't there for you, if you don't, if you haven't noticed the, um, the bodily markers of a clear and stable mind, that clear and stable mind will feel elusive. It's like it sometimes may come or may not come or it's like hard work to get there or something. So two things now. 
that clear and stable mind is not awakening. It's not. It is, maybe you could call it, it's sort of the precondition for awakening. Uh, my teacher, Baker Roshi, is sometimes quoted with this phrase, um, enlightenment is an accident, uh, but meditation makes you accident-prone. <laughs> so I asked him whether he actually said that, and he said no. <laughs> <laughs> he said no, I didn't say that. He He's quoted it, and he, he thinks it's uh, it was said by Osho, by, you know, no, also known as Bhagwan or Rashnish. Now, whoever said it, it's 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 a good um, it's a good insight. Awakening is an accident. In other words, you can't make it happen. But meditation makes you accident prone. So, generating a clear and stable mind makes you accident prone. And what's the accident that happens? The accident is like recognizing in that clarity and stability that there's no fit, that there's no permanent independent self that is present in this mind. And this insight, which is really the core of, of, of Buddhist wisdom, it's like, it can be shallow or deep. So it's just, I'm just saying that to say this clarity and this clear and stable mind is like, a, it's like the fruit of our meditation effort and it opens us up to that kind of insight. Or, I don't know, invites that kind of insight and we, we just see what happens. <clears throat> you want to be serious about your practice I would say there is daily practice where you uh, where you visit yourself in this way uh, on a daily basis and then there is the importance of intensives When you do a lot of sitting, all at once, you know, for seven days, sashin, or for a whole weekend. I, can't, I don't know, I can't explain it physiologically or something, but I know from my own experience that in the longer sitting, if you take it, if you take it seriously enough, I guess, you're inviting uh, these shifts that I've pointed to, you're inviting the subsiding of discursive thought and the coming to the foreground of that field of mind. If you know what it's like, fine. If you don't know what it's like, 
I don't know, without these intensives, I don't think this shift could have really happened for me. So I just want to say that. It's actually kind of difficult to say what this is like, but uh, let me try. I mean, for me, it's, it was something like, oh, you know, thinking subsides, and it's like, here I am without thinking. Well, what, what's that like, you know? So you have this, it's sort of like this non-thinking space pops up, and you're like, wow. That's, you know... That's me in a very different way. So it might just like pop up for a short time and then, you know, go back into thinking, but you can't, you can't unexperience that. It's like, wow. There's like, the one way I've, I started to speak about this to myself is like, there's no need to think. Cause I don't need thinking to like establish my presence in the world. It's not necessary. I can just be there without thinking. I mean, I just noticed, I just had that experience. For however short that is, it can be a very profound shift because it's like you realize the self certainly is not residing in your thoughts. Okay, now, so... Here's your practice. You decide, you know, like how seriously you want to take it. Daily practice, um, intensive sitting practice, and um, being willing to, to notice yourself differently through these practices. And letting that come together, you know, with the words that you're reading and hearing. Like, so that you recognize, wow, this is actually my own experience. Now in the in the weekend sitting we just had last week and I introduced I pointed to something more directly. Um I don't still don't know how to call this, but let's call it field vision. And it's the kind of use of your eyes that I think you should be clear about in your zazen practice. This is how you should use your eyes. Um, some of you have listened to me for a, a while. You know that I'm talking about a distinction of focus and field. There's focused vision and there's field vision. Notice in your daily life that most of the time Maybe all of the time you are engaged in focused vision. Period. It's like this, this, this. Yeah, you see that? And then if we're, you know, in front of screens, it's even worse. It's like only focused vision all the time. This is not a restful, relaxed, stable mind. This is a mind that's hopping around all the time. So in Zazen, we have a very deliberate practice of 
not looking at anything in particular, but looking at the entire, looking at the entire field. Is that making sense? It's good to notice that your field of vision has limits. You know, if you put your hands behind your back, you notice that at some point you can see your hands, right? And then they disappear. Now I can't see them. Now I can see them just slightly. Now I can see them fully, you know. So there is a boundary of what you can see. And the feeling is, in field vision, is to pour your vision into that entire field without looking at anything in particular, both up and down and left and right, you know, all around. You can try that while I'm talking. You may find your habit of wanting to focus in on something. When you notice that, fine, that's happening. And then you let your vision spread out to the field again. In Zazen, that's the way we should hold the eyes. Also, they're downcast 45 degrees, so anyway, I'm not going to talk about that right now, but like that. But while they're downcast, you're not focusing on a spot. I think in, in Crestone, where I've practiced for two decades, you know, the monastery, we had a problem. Like we had these tatami mats, the full tatami mats, and then we had this cushion, and then there's one width of that cushion space in front of you, and then there were cabinets, and the cabinets had um, black handles. And they created this spot. So I think, you know, without instruction, probably 95% of Zen practitioners would be like focusing on that spot. It's like maybe that's a design flaw. Because it's funny, it's like the entire art of building a zendo is to choose wood that has no knots. It's like you are selecting this special wood without knots so that the, that the vision is not drawn to these spots. And then you, and then we put the handles there. Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> this is like a big deal because like you select these woods and they're getting, it's getting very expensive, you know. But anyway, maybe there's, uh, I'm not complaining. Maybe there's just, uh, there's actually, a greater um, effort you have to make for field vision when there's this black spot that keeps attracting your attention. It's like, oh, no, I'm not going to focus on that. So, field vision with soft eyes. Now, again, I... I can only talk about my own experience and you see if it resonates for you. This, this field vision, if you, if you are familiar with it, and I think you can integrate that into your practice, zazen practice, daily zazen practice quite easily. After you get up from meditation, you maintain that. There's no, like, there's no need to focus on anything when we do Kinyin. 
you just, again, look at everything with nothing in particular. And then we go outside, you know, for those of us who practice daily, and then outside there's more going on, and then we do the same thing. We just maintain. Now, if you walk in a line, you know, where everyone is just behind each other and connected, you don't, you don't have to you don't have to worry about where to go. You just hook your body to the body in front of you, and you just walk with this like open gaze. But also, what we can find out in that practice over time is that it's actually an it 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 links up to an awareness in which you become very sensitive to the whole space and what happens in it. It's like um, you don't focus on anything in particular, but that allows you to be open to anything that happens. Does that make sense? Because when you're focused, your mind actually excludes stuff. So you are focused, if we can say that, in a field-like manner on everything all at once. And so you're using the gate of vision to actually start to feel a mind that is open to everything all at once. If you have a more traditional description of zazen, it's like, Sitting with all beings. Okay. What does that mean? What does that mean? Sitting with all beings. Like, are you all counting them? There's a being and there's a being. That would be focused mind, right? Like one, two, three, a million. <coughs> Eight billion humans. Then, you know, all these other creatures. All the galaxies. All beings. It's, but it's a mind that is open to everything without being focused on anything in particular. So it's nothing in particular. So we can use this, this uh, field vision to, to let that attract a mind that goes beyond just vision into a, a sense of everything all at once with nothing in particular. And I think what Zazen also does is it, it connects for us this field vision with this bodily attentional presence that I uh, try to point to with this six or seven point practice. So not only are you seeing into a field without focusing on anything in particular, you're also feeling into that field without feeling anything in particular. You're just open. You're just feeling openness. So, in in so-called post-meditation practice, you know, when you get up from meditation and you want to continue, you want to create a continuous, a continuity of practice. Some, yeah, continuous practice. You need certain points, almost like, to shift yourself into that clear, stable, field-like mind. 
Because when you recognize how narrow you've become, either in your thinking or in your vision or in your emotion, when you notice that you've become so narrow, ah, shift back to the field and maintain that for however long you can. Make the birds sing, you know. It's one one way I'm experimenting with this device. It's like still sitting. It's easy to make the birds sing, but you know what about walking around with the thing? You know, can there, can you still hear the birds? Can you type on your computer and hear the birds? It's hard. I'm also encouraging you to pick out certain activities that aren't too demanding conceptually, that are just in between, like, enough in between not doing anything and being really active, where you can experiment fairly easily with that shift. Like, one preferred practice for me to do that is to, is washing the dishes. I love it. This is, you know, many people don't like that chore. Um, but you stand actually pretty stably in front of your sink, and then there are these objects that you're going to wash. And so you can ground yourself. You can do the six-point practice. You can be active. You can have peripheral vision because it's not like, you know, examining the detail of your fork. Um, you see everything. It sort of floats through your space. You touch it. Your body's engaged. It's wonderful. And you turn that into a kind of, um, you know, if you say, oh, it's a meditative practice. I don't know. It's so corny. It's like, is it really? If you try to get away from washing the dishes, there's nothing meditative about it. It's like, oh, God, I don't know wash the dishes. Wish I had a dishwasher. Um, what's meditative about that? It's meditative when you can use that activity to sh make that shift that I'm talking about. But then... It doesn't have to be just doing the dishes. It could be mowing the lawn or, you know, sweeping or, you know, just all these monastic things. They kind of know what they're doing. There's this still sitting and then you bring that presence into walking and then you bring that presence into fast walking and then you bring that presence into cleaning. So cherish, I would say, cherish those activities. Folding laundry is perfect. I was the guest manager for years, you know. So it's just like doing laundry, it's endless, right? Ooh, more laundry, more la every day. Laundry, washing, folding. It's, it's not uh, productive in terms of our culture, but it is a good gateway to practice that embodied... Um, field awareness because it's not very demanding intellectually but it engages the body and it encourages some softness and precision it's just the right activity If you do computer work you know then it would be the challenge to remember that kind of thing and and crunch your numbers with that kind of softness. I try, I just, I don't know, I try, I try. Yesterday I did accounting all day. 
And I think it's helpful, maybe that's the last thing I'll say, it's helpful to notice transitions in your life. I think there's a tendency in us, in our culture, to um, feel productive when we do one thing after another, like, really quickly. Because, you know, getting a lot done in the day, that's, that's a great thing. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying the, um, the danger here is that you get sucked from one activity into the next without noticing the transition at all. And the transition, that's just how I, I think of it and how I make use of it. The transition is a moment in which you can kind of settle you can use for the shift so that the next activity can be placed into that uh, clear, stable, restful, field-like mind. It may disappear again, fine, but at least that's how you started it. And actually, noticing transitions is an endless endeavor you know it's like is like how long is a moment you could treat as a moment the entire time that you take to wash this whole sink full of dishes and then there's a transition or you can break it down and say like you know you wash this plate you put it in the drying rack and then there's a transition right like there's a little reset that you can do before you grab the next so your moment, your moments are up to you. I think we should use our unwanted state of mind, not as something to complain about or to um, be hard on ourselves, like oh, it's like I feel bad again, or I didn't do it right, or something. But use your unwanted uh, non-nourishing state of states of minds to to make the shift use them as a springboard into your um, daily activity practice so you can start to feel grateful for when you feel completely lost and absorbed in your delusive mind it's like, oh, good, now I can return. If you're not so familiar with these bodily markers, please bring your attention to noticing them. It's, it's very important.
know, it was really important to me. And then I close. It was really important to me. My teacher spoke about these markers as a particular feeling in his cheekbones. And he said, I get a particular feeling in my cheekbones. And I didn't take it as like, I have to feel my cheekbones in a particular way. I just heard it as like, there is a bodily marker. It took me a while to figure this out. And so let's just assume that these bodily markers are different for each of us. They don't have to be the same, but they're there. So you can you can know your you can know your own way of feeling when the shift occurs. When you know it in your own way, that's the only way, then it becomes for you that resource to be used to make a shift. So actually, the most important thing is the discovery of it so that it is completely your own. Whether you use the cheekbones, or the top of your head, or the spine, or the way you're grounded, or a sinking energy in your in your body. It's not just sinking, as I always say, it's rising and sinking always occur together, but Often our energy is too much rising, and so we feel the sinking in a pronounced way when it occurs, and that can be the marker, and so forth. So discover these um, on your own.